Welcome to a fantastic edition of Rebellion's Educational Series. I have a legendary historian, Professor Eric Foner, Pulitzer Prize winner, the most cited historical professor on U.S. college campuses. I have read maybe six of his books. Professor, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, very happy to be here. No, totally honored. So we're going to conquer the Civil War for as much as we can in 15 to 20 minutes. But let's start with Robert Gould Shaw and his letters to his parents. Uh, you know, what can we learn from that? And the Masters is 54th. Well, Shaw, you know, is is uh, was not very widely known, let's put it that way, until what, 20 odd years ago when the movie Glory came out about Shaw and the uh, 54th Massachusetts Regiment, an all-black regiment, uh, which he commanded uh, in the second half of the Civil War, well, until his death in their first major battle at, um, uh, you know, in South Carolina. Um, Wagner, yes. Yeah, uh, so, um, you know, Shaw comes from an abolitionist family in Massachusetts. He's very committed to the war, to the emancipation of the slaves. He wants to do his part. He volunteers to be, um, you know, the commander of a regiment of black troops. This is not something that most career military men wanted to do. Uh, many of them, just, even though Lincoln authorized the use of black soldiers in the Emancipation Proclamation itself, uh, many military commanders felt this was not a good way to promote yourself in the army hierarchy. So, you know, he was an idealist. He, he thought the war should end slavery. He believed in the equality of black and white. And uh, he gave his life really early, you know, as soon as at Fort Wagner um, uh, to, to help win the war and promote the, the fortunes of African-Americans. Was it true that if he was taken as a prisoner of war, he would have been executed? And that's a tricky question. The, the Confederacy refused to recognize black soldiers as um, legitimate <laughs> war figures. In other words, uh, to use a modern term we've heard since 9-11, the, the Confederacy considered black soldiers and their commanders as, you know, unlawful combatants. They said that black soldiers, they would treat as slave rebels and execute them if captured, not treat them as prisoners of war. Um, would they have actually executed Shaw if captured? May Probably not. Uh, you know, that would lead to reprisals against Confederate officers who had been captured by the Union Army. But the fact is that the Confederacy insisted that the, the rules of war did not apply to African-American soldiers or their commanders. So that put them all in great jeopardy. If they were captured, um, you know, uh, they might very well be executed. Or, of course, the most famous example at Fort Pillow, Tennessee, where um, which was garrisoned by black soldiers and overrun by Confederates under the command of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, some number, several score of black soldiers were executed after surrendering by Confederates, uh, uh, by Confederate troops. So, um, you know, they knew that both the Shaw and the, the troops knew that they were in a very precarious situation, even more so than anyone on a battlefield. Nathan Bedford Forrest did go on to found the Ku Klux Klan after the war. Is that true? Yeah, Nathan Bedford Forrest was a major slave trader before the Civil War. Uh, he commanded these troops that massacred black soldiers during the war, and he's considered one of the most important founders of the Ku Klux Klan. Those accomplishments, if you want to call them that, 
led to the fact that uh, there are more statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest in Tennessee, where he came from, than any other person. There are more statues of Forrest than of Andrew Jackson, who came out of Tennessee. Um, so, you know, th those, uh, those actions of his did not seem to disqualify him from the esteem of his fellow Tennesseans, at least white ones, let's put it that way. I always love that uh, Andrew Jackson let uh, everyone into the White House when he became president for that big party. Uh, that was... Uh, yeah, was, uh, that was a sign that um, a more, to use a modern term, populistic uh, kind of presidency had emerged. Uh, before yeah. that, the inaugurations were pretty decorous occasions, but now a large crowd or mob or whatever uh, came into the White House after uh, Jackson's inaugural address and uh, kind of ruined the furniture and uh, drank all the liquor. But, um, you know, Prof Professor, playing a, a what if, had the Union lost at Gettysburg, do you think the Confederacy could have won the war or do you think the Union still would have won out? You know, of course, it's impossible to answer questions like that. They're what yes. we call counterfactual history, but nonetheless, we try anyway. Yes. Um, you know, the question is what it wasn't on the battlefield in a way that the war was won and lost. It was also on the home front. What would have been the response in the North in terms of public sentiment to a defeat at Gettysburg? Uh, a defeat at Gettysburg, the North, law, the Union lost a lot of battles in the first few years of the war, and yeah. uh, they didn't give up. The question is, will the pu will public support for the war disappear? Uh, maybe it would have if, if Lee had really defeated the Union Army at Gettysburg. He could have turned around and maybe even captured Washington by heading south. Um, what would then have happened? Would Northerners have said, well, we can't win, so let's just give up? Or would they have been inspired to fight on. You know, many, uh, many uh, sovereigns that have lost a battle or two win the war in the end. Uh, George Washington lost just about every battle uh, during the American Revolution and somehow, except the last one, that's the key one, the last one. That is the key one. Uh, we don't know if Gettysburg would have, but the, the, and he terribly the answer to that question war. requires you to say, what was Lee doing at Gettysburg anyway? Oh. He invaded Pennsylvania, not what, to capture territory? No, maybe to inflict harm on the Union Army, but certainly there were plenty more soldiers available. No, it was to attack Northern public sentiment, is to undermine support for the war. In a war like this, that is the key military, um, you know, the military element, support for the war at home. And that is where Lincoln excelled in mobilizing public sentiment, despite the tremendous casualties of the Civil War, uh, and indeed war weariness uh, as it began to develop, particularly in 1864. So I guess my long-winded answer to what you asked is no, it would not have led to the end of the war and the uh, recognition of the Confederacy. You would have had to have uh, many more defeats for that to happen. Yeah. And do you think there's any possibility of that, or just the supplies wasn't there, the industry wasn't there? Despite oh, there was possibly... You know, looking back, it seems inevitable that the Union would have won the war. You know, first of all, everything seems inevitable after it happens, you know. Yes. Um, it, the, this, the, no, the Union obviously exceeded the Confederacy in uh, manpower, in industrial might, in, you know, all sorts of the elements of war. But on the key element, the Confederacy had the advantage, and that was 
the Union had to conquer the South. The South did not have to conquer the North. The South simply had to keep an army in the field and it was winning. Uh, the Union had to occupy an area as large as Western Europe. It's not so easy to do that. That negated a lot of the advantages that the Union had. And therefore, yes, it's certainly possible to imagine the Confederacy uh, emerging victorious. Um, and if that had happened, slavery would have lasted a lot longer than it did. There's no question about that. And do you believe uh, General Stonewall Jackson is as great as the legend proceeds, or do you think he is uh, an overrated? Well, he managed to uh, get himself killed uh, fairly early in the war, so we don't know what, uh, what his long-term uh, achievements would have been. Uh, Lee felt that uh, Jackson was a great commander, you know, my right-hand man here. Um, I, I don't know. You know, the, I, I'm actually not an expert on military strategy and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. I think there is a tendency uh, in writing and, you know, public memory about the Civil War to sort of juxtapose the northern kind of military machine, you know, against the valor of the Confederate soldiers and the military sagacity of Confederate leaders. Now, Lee didn't last as long, you know, but let's take Robert E. Lee. For a long time, Lee was considered a great tactician and strategist, and his opponent, General Grant, was considered a butcher who just threw, you know, were fighting a war of attrition, indifferent to casualties because he had more men at his disposal. I don't think historians feel that way at all today. Lee's weaknesses are emphasized more the fact that he really was just fighting for Virginia. He didn't have a comprehensive picture of the whole war and all the different theaters of conflict, whereas Grant did. Grant really understood the connection between the war in the East and the war in the West and things like that. Um, so you, uh, you feel history uh, overrates good, gen good generalship and bad generalship on both sides. Yeah. So, so you really feel history underrates Grant? Sorry, could you say that again? You feel history underrates General Grant? Well, lately, Grant has had a resurgence. You know, if, if Grant were a, a stock, it had been down considerably, but it's been zooming up with the rest of the stock market uh, lately uh, for various reasons. One, the most important actually is Grant's um, presidency later on, where he would, you know, there was a lot of corruption in the federal government, not Grant personally, but people around him. But nowadays, historians emphasize more Grant's sincere efforts to try to enforce the Reconstruction Acts, enforce the right to vote for African-Americans, uh, which was implemented in the Reconstruction laws and in the 15th Amendment, uh, his commitment to uh, trying to promote racial equality. Of course, Lee was the opposite. Lee was a slave owner. Uh, Lee, after the Civil War, when people asked Lee, look, there's this Klan violence, you know, a word from you to white Southerners to stop all this violence against black people would go a long way. And Lee said, forget it, I'm not interested. He never said a word really? to discourage uh, the kind of violence that was being perpetrated against uh, African-Americans in the South. Um, Lee's reputation because of his connections with slavery have uh, diminished and uh, Grant's uh, stock has been going up lately. And that reverberates back onto how people view them as military figures as well as uh, political ones. So do you feel, uh, you know, uh, General Sherman getting kind of, you know, sold of late, you think that's uh, Meredith? Do you think uh, he, he was? Uh... Well, 
You know, Sherman's another one. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think in the South Sherman will ever be considered a great uh, hero. Um, but, you know, there's more attention given nowadays, not only to the march to the sea and the property destruction that went along with that, but to Sherman's understanding that slavery was the core of the Confederacy. It was slavery that was enabling them to keep armies uh, in the field and that slavery was a target of the war. And, um, you know, as he marched through Georgia, he freed thousands of slaves who just left the plantations to follow along with the Union Army and gain freedom. Now, Sherman was not a racial egalitarian in the slightest, um, but he understood that slavery had to be destroyed if you're going to win this war. Mm, and, military minded. Uh, and then, you know, in January 1865, Sherman issued his famous field order, setting aside land and a mule, 40 acres and a mule uh, in South Carolina, Georgia, for the settlement of black families. Thousands of African-Americans received what they call Sherman land in the very, very last moments of the Civil War and right after that. And it's one of those, you know, what if, what if, what if the federal government had followed that policy and distributed land to the former slaves, giving an economic foundation to the freedom that they had just acquired? Um, we don't know, but it probably things would have worked out a lot better than they uh, ended up. Uh, now, again, it wasn't Sherman was mostly interested in a doing something with those thousands of black people who were following his army. No general wants to have responsibility for that. But he also understood that an economic foundation was necessary for uh, real freedom. Well, wonderful. You won your Pulitzer for your work on Abraham Lincoln. Do you have a, a favorite uh, vignette or memory of Abraham Lincoln that kind of defines the president to you? Well, you know, Lincoln is uh, such a fascinating figure. Uh, as I was working on that book, you might say my admiration for Lincoln grew along the way, because even though I'm a scholar of the 19th century, I'd never written a book about Lincoln before. And what I had said about him in some respects was fairly critical. But first of all, as a writer, I came to be, I don't know what you'd say, just enormously impressed by his, his writing, his command of the language. This is a guy who had like one year of formal schooling in his entire life. He was totally self-educated. And yet he had a command of the language, second only to, I'm not sure who, maybe Jefferson among uh, our uh, presidents. You know, to me, the essence of Lincoln and the thing that I found the most impressive was simply his capacity for growth. Lincoln was not stuck in his ways. Lincoln understood that in an unparalleled crisis, the old views, including his own old views about slavery, had to be jettisoned. You needed new policies to deal with this unprecedented situation. So how he goes from, let's say, at the beginning of the war, saying slavery is not really the issue here, and uh, if we do free the slaves, we've got to colonize them. That is, encourage them to leave the country for Africa or Central America or Haiti. How does he get from that four years later to having decreed emancipation throughout most of the South, uh, supported the passage of the 13th Amendment, um, abolishing slavery throughout the country, and for the first time at the very end of his life, advocating the right to vote for 
uh, some African-American men, particularly the soldiers. Here we come back again to Robert Gould Shaw here. These, the black soldiers, said Lincoln, had earned the right to equal citizenship, the right to vote in the post-war world. Now you might say, well, yeah, that's not universal suffrage, but you know, at that moment, only five Northern states allowed uh, African-American men to vote uh, on the same basis as, um, as white men. So Lincoln has gotten ahead of the curve really uh, during the war on this issue of blacks as citizens, blacks as part of the body politic. So it's actually that evolution that's remarkable uh, in my view. It's not any one moment. You can't freeze Lincoln at a moment and say, here is the essential Lincoln, because he was always growing and, <clears throat> excuse me, and changing. Professor Foner, that was a really brilliant response. And I, I, really, I, I couldn't agree with him more. The evolution of Lincoln throughout the war is absolutely fascinating. And this conversation has been absolutely fascinating. So I thank you so much for coming on today. and. Uh, you know, on uh, the website, we'll have all of the professor's books, and I have read many of them, and I encourage you to do so as well. And if you go to Columbia, try and get into one of his classes, though it's very hard. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me and uh, talking about these uh, perennially fascinating questions. I know this was the pleasure was all mine, Professor. Uh, you're a treasure. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.